Welcome back, folks. This is Richard, founder of Short-Term Rental University and Airbnb Superhost. On today's podcast, I'm really excited to have Joel Owens, who is the CEO and founder of All World Realty. He's an expert in all things triple net lease. And while you may not be prepared to enter into something like this, there's no time like the current time to become educated and knowledgeable on all sorts of things that you can do when you sell your properties. And triple net leases is something I'm considering. So I wanted to bring to you an expert, Joel Owens, All World Realty. Thank you very much. All right. Thanks, Richard. I'm with All World Realty. I've been doing commercial real estate for 15 years. Um, I have individual uh, clients and investors all across the country uh, that have individual net worths from $1 million to $100 million. I also work with uh, REITs, insurance companies, pension funds, syndication, uh, buying retail property, single tenant net lease, and also retail shopping Okay, great. So it sounds like you're awfully busy and you have a lot of expertise. Why don't we start um, bringing the audience up to speed? Why don't you walk us through what a triple net lease is and contrast that with, say, a double net and a ground lease, and then let's get right into it. Okay, great. So, you know, an absolute triple net lease, which is one tenant in one building, a piece of land, uh, you do absolutely nothing. You just collect a check uh, once a month. Uh, usually there's a, a primary lease term anywhere from 10 uh, to 25 years. And then after that, there's option periods that are built into the lease. Uh, so the you still own the building and the land, but depending on what's written into the lease, you could be responsible for roof, structure, um, parking lot, utility lines that are underneath the parking lot. Uh, so it's very important uh, to read what's in those leases. Uh, the ground hey, Joel. is what. Joel, yeah. I'm sorry, you broke up there for a second, so I just want to make sure that the listening audience really understands. With the triple net lease, you own the building, but the tenant is responsible for all repairs, all maintenance, all taxes, everything that happens. You do absolutely nothing. You contrasted that with the double net lease. Uh, where, what is the difference? So the difference is with a double net lease, depending on what's written in the leases, and all of them are different, you can be responsible for the roof, the structure, the parking lot, uh, clearing snow that's in a cold belt state, and the utility lines that run underneath the parking lot to the street. So on a double net, there could be a lot of cost that the landlord is responsible for. And a single tenant net lease building. And that's the difference between the two of them. Uh, the double net leases will generate a little bit higher cap rate, but you have to make sure that, you know, the roof is in good condition. Um, the utility lines, if they weren't run properly when originally built, then you have to cut up part of the parking lot to fix a utility line. That could run tens of thousands of dollars alone, just that one item. So, Really important to read the leases ahead of time and see what you're obligated to as a lender. Now, with ground right. leases, okay, with ground leases, you don't own the building. So, one of the things with the ground lease is uh, you can't uh, tax depreciate the land because you don't own the building. Typically, with a double net or triple net lease, 
you can appreciate usually about 75% of the purchase price to the building and 25% to the land. Um, on, the, on the ground lease, you don't typically have any um, depreciation. Now, one of the benefits of the ground lease is that typically you can buy assets at a cheaper price point that you could uh, not otherwise afford. So, for an example, you could have a McDonald's that goes for a five cap in a you know strong suburban to urban core area that would cost about three to four million dollars to buy the McDonald's. Whereas on a ground lease, the rent is less because you don't own the building. And so and you can buy in a quality area or be buying a ground lease for say two million dollars instead of three and a half to four million dollars. So that's one of the benefits of the ground lease that you can buy at a lower price point in a stronger location that you might not otherwise be able to Okay, but it sounds like the vast majority of what you focus on and what my interest is and hopefully the audience listening audience interest is, is in triple net leases with um, single tenants and retail exposure. So why don't we go ahead and focus on that and tell us a little bit about sort of where we are in the cycle for cap rates um, and then also where you think we are in terms of the cap rates by different area and price points and credit quality. Okay, so with single tenant net leases, um, I would say we're probably, you know, we're probably toward the end of the cycle, uh, just as far as what cap rates are going for. Now, within single tenant net lease, there's different um, value add plays. Uh, so typically across the country, um, you're looking in California or Nevada, uh, cap rates are more compressed, uh, simply because a lot of people in California are exiting their multifamily buildings and they're looking for passive. And since Nevada and in California are close by, um, just because of supply and demand, those are selling for lower cap rates. If you move to um, Texas or Georgia, those kind of locations are still warm belt states. So you can generally get maybe about 50 to 100 basis points higher cap rates than single tenant net lease property. Um, on these okay, properties, let's define that. Can we define that range, please? Because we don't know 100 basis points off of what. So where where are we in California, and then where are we if you move into Texas? So in California, uh, you know, it it depends on the price point. So different single tenant net lease assets trade at various price points. So a Walgreens pharmacy, you might have to buy something in the five or six million dollar range in California to be able to buy a Walgreens versus a Dollar General store in California. You might be paying two to two and a half million dollars. And so, you know, there the cap rate, as you go up in the price points, the cap rate moves up some because there's less buyers that can buy those properties. Um, so California, you're looking anywhere from maybe about a 4% cap rate to at the top, maybe a 6% cap rate. Whereas if you move to Texas, uh, you're looking at say a 5% cap rate up to the properties that at least it might be $10 million. You know, you might be getting a, a seven cap with a newly minted 
based on those types of properties. Okay, so not huge numbers right now, and I would agree with you that we're towards the end of the cycle. So then my question becomes, if these, if these prices aren't that great, the, the yield isn't that great, we're near the end of the cycle, what's someone like me to do? I don't really want to buy at a five cap rate hoping that I can sell this property in 10 years or in 15 years at a 3% cap rate, it's much more likely in a rising interest rate environment that we're in right now that uh, that might be a bad investment. Well, you have to look at the lease that's written in and you have to see how many rental increases are, are happening so that what the blended cap rate is going to be in you know, 5, 10, 15 years. And you have to stress test the property with the financing uh, when you're looking at purchasing a single tenant net lease asset. Um, the other aspect of it that you have to look at is uh, not just the starting cap rate, but what is the rent that's being paid by that tenant? Is it at market? Is it above market? Is it below market? Because one of the value plays is, is the cap rate blends up over time. If the starting rent rate is low, uh, any new development project 5, 10, 15 years from now, the construction materials are going to cost more, the labor is going to cost more, the land is going to cost more to develop. So those rents by nature will be higher than they are today just due to cost. If the area is strong and in high demand. So, uh, and also as an area fills out and becomes more dense, the air right, the ability to go up, uh, also um, becomes more valuable. Because the zoning department uh, will usually uh, release the zoning, you know, allow more density as time moves on because there's nowhere left to go but up because all the land has pretty much been developed in an urban core to strong suburban area. Um, so then your, you know, density rights become uh, more valuable. There's also some value plays you can do with single tenant at least. Um, you can buy something where there's not many years left in the primary lease term, and then you know it might be at a higher cap rate, such as an you know eight plus cap rate, and then you negotiate with a tenant to uh, renew or extend early, and you create a ten or fifteen year primary lease term that now in the market is worth you know a six cap or six point two cap rate uh, just by extending the primary term of the lease. Because on single tenant at lease. A lot of the value is derived from who is the credit tenant, where is it located, and how long are they guaranteeing the lease due in the primary lease term before the option kick in. Okay, so if you do all that, what sort of appreciation do you see when you sell the property? In other words, my understanding is that these assets are predominantly priced on exactly what you just said location, the tenant, this, the credit worthiness of the tenant and the lease term. So if you improve all of that, um, is it likely that your asset that you bought for a million dollars, you might be able to sell for a million three? Or do you think that this really isn't a, a price appreciation game as much as it is just a yield and you want to clip the coupon for as long as possible? So on single tenant net lease, um, kind of the goal for it, you know, worst case scenario, the cap rate blended up over time 
the goal would be at the end when you sell it to recoup your total cost and to not lose any equity and then have the cash flow ongoing for all those years for the, for the tax right now. That would be the you know, worst case scenario. When you're buying these single tenant net leases, it's critical that you watch for the developer um, amortizing the tenant improvements uh, into the property itself. So what I mean by that is uh, when they're developing, uh, say, a Walgreens, Walgreens might ask for interior improvements in the building of dollars a square foot. Well, for the developer to agree to that, they might get Walgreens to pay for a 10,000 square foot building, you know, $34 a foot in rent when the market rent is $26 a foot. So what happens is if you put the money down uh, and get the loan on the property and Walgreens ever leaves, you have to release it to a second generation tenant, what we call it. Uh, then the even if the rents have gone up in the market over time, you're likely going to be renting it at less per square foot than when you have the Walgreens in the space. So when you're looking at these brand new single-family properties, you have to make sure that they don't have overinflated rent in the primary lease term, even if it's a credit tenant. And how often do they change tenants, and, and what's that process look like? I think it's called when your lease goes dark, right? I mean, that seems to me like a pretty daunting, scary scenario. I, I own single-family homes. I'm going to sell a single-family home. I'm going to go out and buy this big box, and Walgreens is my tenant. They're paying a good rent. I'm making, call it 5 6 7%. All is good, but you just brought up a point, which is uh, the, the lease ends. Now I've got this big, scary box in Texas. How do I re-rent it? How long does it stay dark? How much pain and energy is that? And how much do you typically see that occurring with your clients? Or is that just the worst case scenario and more often than not, Walgreens or whoever the credit quality wants to just stay put because that location becomes part of their brand? So I'll see maybe maybe 15% of the time that can happen. And a lot of it depends on you really want to buy the best location. So even if a Walgreens was a higher cap rate, sometimes they'll go into an area because there's no uh, there's nowhere to put a location, and they've been there for you know five or ten years. But uh, developers building a new development down the road, where instead of being on the on the side or mid block as we call it, they're going to be on the hard corner. And then what happens then is Walgreens will want to move. They'll put some sublease language in their lease to where they'll want to move to a better location. Um, typically, for box size, you know, Walgreens is about 10, 11,000 square feet. If it's on the corner, uh, there's a lot of tenants, national tenants and local tenants, that even if Walgreens would leave, uh, they're going to want that space. And so typically, you might have about maybe about a six to eight month period uh, for a good location like that to be able to uh, you know reach out to the tenant rep brokers um, if the tenant's looking at it then they're going to have to uh, put a letter of intent on the site then generally these national credit tenants have a committee that comes out site location once they get approval for that 
then they go to negotiating the actual lease with the commercial attorney, and then they go to uh, do the build out for the inside of the space, uh, any outside improvements, and then they go to get the uh, you know occupancy permit to open the business, and then start paying rent. So typically about a you know six to eight month profit from something like that. The, the boxes that can stay vacant for longer periods of time. Uh, most individual investors don't buy those. Those are typically, you know, a Best Buy, uh, Buy Store, Target, or Kohl's. Um, those are generally, you know, 107,000 square feet. Those can sit vacant for, you know, a year or two years sometimes. But those are typically owned by REITs, and they typically own maybe, you know, 50 Best Buys. So if one of them goes dark over the whole portfolio, it, it doesn't bother them. Where an individual investor that would own that size box goes dark, you'd be pumping a lot of cash into it to pay the mortgage every month, waiting a couple of years before getting a release again for national tenants. So there's not as many tenants that want that big of a box size anymore. Anything 10,000 square feet or below, uh, basically neighborhood street retail, there's a lot of tenants that want those size spaces, and that's a bigger part of the growth sector right now than, than the real big box type stuff. Okay, so let's just summarize. So in your experience, about 15% of your clients have experienced a, a, a tenant turnover or a box going dark. Um, and in your experience, that takes six to eight months. So now you have a multi-million dollar investment that was earning five, six, seven percent And it sounds like half a year, three quarters of a year, maybe even a year of lost income while you try and turn over and get a new tenant in there. And then one question I had when I was listening to you, Joel, and I'm sure the listeners also have it, is uh, you talked about them making modifications to the outside and the inside and so on and so forth. I think the assumption is, is that the tenant, the prospective tenant would be paying for that. But can you clarify that? If, it, if this was laid out for uh, a Walgreens and, uh, you know, their competitor, whatever, Dwayne Reed wants to come in and take it, they may want to change aisles or lighting or where the cash registers are. That's a big expense. Who's paying for that? It's all negotiable between the landlord tenant and what rent they're going to agree to pay. So you typically have multiple costs. So when a tenant goes out, you're going to have a commercial attorney that you're going to pay to do the new lease for the new tenant. Um, you're going to have any tenant improvement for the outside or the inside that the tenant wants, you know, if they want the roof redone or an AC unit or anything like that. And then if that tenant has a tenant rep broker, uh, you're going to be paying for that also upon lease execution. So if there was, let's say you're signing a tenant on the primary lease term for 10 years, the value of the rental income over the 10 years is a million dollars. Typically a tenant rep is to get Two and a half to three percent as a fee for bringing that tenant to your building and signing the lease. So you're going to be paying you know, anywhere from twenty-five to thirty thousand upfront uh, upon lease execution uh, to, to go into that property. Now at that time, um, what you would do is you'd get a non-refundable deposit from the tenant uh, to make sure they commit to the site uh, upon lease execution before you pay that tenant rent broker. That way, the tenant doesn't all of a sudden change their mind, even if they're executing a lease and, and back out of the site. And then you've already paid the tenant rep broker for the lease. Um, so, you know, it's a case-by-case case basis. Um, 
if they want to pay, we have a DeVita, uh, Dallas is that one of my clients is buying right now. And it's in more of a, in more of a outside suburban area, lower price point. Um, but the DeVita put in, you know, over a million bucks of improvements into the site on this building. And my clients buying the building for, you know, a little under two million bucks. So for that, DeVita wanted a lower starting rent. So they're only paying uh, about 14 bucks a foot in rent. Where a normal rent would be, you know, 26 bucks a foot for that area. Um, so, so that was a way for the owner not to have to, you know, come out with a bunch of money to fill out the space. They let the tenant do it. The other good part about that is that the tenant spends so much money themselves building out the space, they're not likely going to move at all. Um, because they've spent so much, and so much money in that space, they feel very strongly about that location for the long term. Um, so that's just, it, it, it can be negotiable. That's why the rent is so important what they're paying per square foot. Um, if the rent is below market, you can do a lot of different things. You can um, do a lot more negotiating. Um, if they want post market rent and they're wanting TI, you're going to have to get a, a lot higher rent per square foot to recoup what you're paying on behalf of the tenant to fill out this way. Okay. So is tenant turnover and it going dark something to be avoided and feared or it's just unlikely and it can be managed? I mean, I, I've always feared it very much and listening to what you're telling me, it sounds like it's not the best thing in the world, although it can come out with a happy ending. Yeah, it just depends on the, I, I believe strongly in the location. That's what I believe in more than anything else is the dirt that the property sits on. Long term, I believe the rent growth and the value in the land is, is key. It's important to have a credit tenant. I, I would rather own, you know, Joe Blow's Cafe in this suburban core area with 30,000 cars a day going behind it, Lowe's is the anchor behind it on a corner where it's been there a long time and has low market rents. And if it ever goes out, you can redevelop that site or ask much higher rents because of the location versus owning a Starbucks that's out in the middle of rural nowhere and you're buying it just because it's lower price point and they're the main national tenant there. But if Starbucks ever goes out, your second or third generation of tenants that will rent in those small economy towns, even in an economic downturn, they're not going to pay the rent that Starbucks is paying. So, you know, I see all the time a property, say a Starbucks, for, you know, 1.8 million, and then it's an area with the income and rural location of 3,000 uh, a year, and it only has in a one mile radius or a three mile ring radius, you know, maybe 10,000 people. Well, if you're going to buy a Starbucks for a five and a half or six cap. One of my clients bought one in Sugarland, Texas. You know the income there, and the population is you know over a hundred thousand in in the area. It's a strong suburban core area. So if you're going to own something like that, and it's on the corner with a red light, you had to pay about two point three million instead of the one point six, but you're getting a lot better location in dirt in time long term. And the chances for rent growth are in higher areas. And they hold that better in an economic downturn as well. And you have a bigger pool of tenants that are going to want 
you know, strong suburban to urban poor uh, location. Well, that makes perfect sense in the sense that everything we've always learned about real estate is that location, location, location is the only thing that really matters. And when it comes to triple net lease uh, investing, there's a lot of emphasis placed on the credit quality of the tenant, right? People take a lot of comfort from the fact that it is Starbucks and maybe it's guaranteed by, you know, not just the franchiser and all of his other uh, Starbucks, but maybe also even the parent company. And so people take comfort in that cash flow. But to your point, if something were to happen to that one particular Starbucks or that one franchise, or um, now you've got this box in the middle of nowhere without the Starbucks brand, and how's it going to do when it's, you know, Billy Bob and Jean's coffee shop? You know, how much rent are they going to pay? And how much are people going to be willing to pull in there and buy coffee from them? And at what price point, right? They, they lose that marquee brand, so everything sort of crumbles. But to your point, maybe it's a better investment to spend more money in a better location with a worse tenant quality with the goal of in six years or whenever um, getting that tenant out and getting a higher quality tenant. Is that sort of the strategy that you're suggesting? Yeah, it's one of the strategies. A lot of it, too, for the investor depends on uh, what I call the regeneration of capital. So if your global cash flow, you know, a lot of it depends on your liquidity and net worth. So if someone's buying a you know, $2 million single-team net lease and they're exchanging some proceeds, you know, to buy that single-team net lease property and it grows off X dollars per month, uh, if that tenant were to go dark, they could feed that for, you know, the six or seven months to get released again, even if they're going to get higher rent to increase the equity value of the property. Um, now, if it's a retiree that's looking at it more as a coupon and they're going to live off the income of the single team net lease property, uh, then that's a different situation. So, you know, I get some investors where they had an event where they sold a tech company um, or they sold off some single family houses. And that represents a big chunk of their net worth. And as far as liquid cash flow coming in, they don't have as much with that as most of the net worth is tied up in these properties they're selling and the down payment they're putting for the financing on one of these properties versus a doctor that's a surgeon that's making a million bucks a year doing surgeries. Their regeneration of capital after expenses, they're able to save, you know, fifty, sixty thousand dollars a month to reinvest every single month and keep growing the portfolio that have that cash flow coming in to handle, you know, a vacancy with a single team net lease building or, or these other types of items. So it just depends. The risk depends on the location. It depends on the credit of the tenant. And then it depends on the investor themselves that's going to own the asset, how fast they can regenerate capital, and what their current liquidity net worth is, and what percentage of that is in retirement accounts versus regular accounts that, that determine okay. the stuff. Okay, so I want to talk to some value-add strategies that you and I have discussed in the past. But before we do that, um, I, by way of a segue into it, you know, we started this conversation by saying you think that we're towards the end of the cap rate um, cycle, and I think you're right. I mean, cap rates have gone from, I don't know, maybe they were in, in high single digits to now like mid-single digits, so maybe they were at 9% or 8%, and now maybe... A high quality, good location is at 
5% or maybe even less. Uh, at the same time, we're in a rising interest rate environment but for the first time in maybe 30 or 40 years. So the risk-free rate is going up. I can get 3% guaranteed by the U.S. government for, for 10 years, and that number is going higher and higher. And all of a sudden, my cost of financing, if I have a mortgage on this, um, is resetting at a higher rate, but my income from the tenant is fixed at, say, 5%. So if I were to sell this property, uh, I may well take a loss. If I bought this property for $2 million or $5 million, if I have to sell it at a higher cap rate, I may actually have a loss in that scenario. And or if I have financing on it and it resets, I may find that I am have negative cash flow as well. So I'm just trying to figure out what does this mean and how attractive does this look? And I bet the solution comes in some of these value-added strategies that you've talked about with me. But maybe you can walk us through that cycle, rising interest rates, and then some value-add. Okay. So uh, what happens is below a certain price point in the single tenant net lease space, um, you know, say about $3 million or so, uh, there's a lot of all-cash purchases. So even as the interest rates are rising, the caps aren't rising as much in that yield range because uh, most people are paying caps. So you thought, you know, if someone's buying something all cash, three million at a six percent cap rate, just because interest rates are rising upwards, they're not using debt, so they're not going to, uh, you know, the demand for the cap rate is still going to stay, stay pretty much the same. It's not going to move up as much. Uh, where you have more movement is in the, you know, five, six, seven million dollar range where there's a, a less amount of buyers that can pay all cash. They're going to be using some form of debt. Going to, as the interest rates rise, they're going to need to up the cap rate that they would sell at to be able, you know, make it work for a buyer. Um, now when developers are developing these properties brand new, um, we have what's called a cap rate to cost, which is their break even. So the developer is going to have their land cost, Construction costs, their legal costs, um, any tenant improvements for, for the tenant, the tenant uh, rep uh, leasing fees, and what they're going to do is they're going to hit maybe about a nine to nine and a half cap rate break even on a new single tenant net lease property, and then generally they'll hold it for at least a year, and then they'll pay long term capital gains tax and they'll pay attorney fees uh, to the property and brokerage commission to sell the property. And so their goal generally they're selling it to maybe a five to six cap. So after their long term capital gains and what they're paying commission, they're looking for about a two hundred basis point profit spread. So, you know, I get people all the time they want to buy single tenant less net lease property with a brand new lease and they want to buy it, you know, for two or three million bucks and they want to get it for seven and a half or an eight cap. Well, that's not realistic because even all cash, because the developer developed it for a nine to a nine and a half cap rate break even. So after their resale cost, if they were selling it for seven and a half or eight cap, they'd be taking a loss on the property. You know, so there's no reason for them to sell a brand new minted lease at that price point. Uh, they'll simply convert to from a construction loan to a permanent loan, pull out 75% of the new value, hold that asset and then just keep developing more properties with a long-term lease in place and wait till a better time in the cycle to sell or dispose of their assets. 
on the single tenant lease rate. Um, now, as you go up on the single tenant lease scale and price point, you can get more yield because there's less buyers that are able to purchase those properties. You know, in the two million and below range, there's a ton of buyers that might be sitting on, you know, five, six, seven hundred thousand able to purchase something, and so that makes it more cap rate compressed. They've owned an active, you know, Airbnb or a multifamily. Uh, they're older in age now, or they have higher net worth, and they're willing to take less yield, and they want to go um, totally passive. Um, now, on the single ton net lease side, you can get into value add, um, where you buy um, more of a mom and pop tenant instead of a national tenant, and you buy a location at a higher cap rate uh, with lower rent. And if that tenant ever goes out, you can request them with a national tenant, the location is strong. There's also uh, where I mentioned Wait, let's before. just stick with that for one second, Joel. Joel, let's just okay. stick with that for a second so that we can try and get granular and help people sort of visualize this and hopefully pick up the phone and give you a call. And we'll include a link uh, for them to contact you. But, okay, so let's say, let's stick with that strategy. Um, we found a great location. Uh, we like it a lot. Uh, it's got a, a tenant in there that might be, I don't know, is it a C tenant or is it a B tenant? But it's definitely not a, a nationwide A tenant. Um, and if our strategy is to buy that because of the location, we're going to forego current income because um, the tenant isn't, or the tenant quality isn't as great. But we want to get that tenant out and get a national tenant in there. What sort of lease term length are we looking for? In other words, if that tenant had a 30 year lease, that strategy is not very viable. And at the same time, if that tenant's lease expired in 30 days, likely there's a ton of people that are looking for it and will bid up, you know, beyond this. So where's sort of the sweet spot? Is it with when there's five years left in the lease and 10 years left in the lease? Like what's that when you're analyzing this stuff, how much lease term do you like to see? Value add anything below 10 years in the primary lease term is harder and harder to finance. Uh, because what the lenders will do is, is, we talked about it earlier, they'll have an appraiser will do a regular value and they'll do a dark value. Uh, regular value is with a tenant in place, paying the rent and the building the land, what that is worth. And then the other value is if the tenant doesn't renew the option, uh, the appraiser is doing the dark value. So no tenant, no income, it's the building in the land. And what is that going to be worth? And they want that value to be at or higher than, or, than the remaining mortgage balance at that time. Um, so generally, when most people buy single tenant net lease, they're looking at 10 years primary term or more to land regular financing where they can get a 20-year amortization period and seven 10-year fixed rate uh, commercial loan. So typically, anything below 10 years, the uh, cap rate starts rising. And if you can buy it all cash, it's um, you have a chance at a bad play there. Uh, or what you can also do is, say for instance, you buy something all cash and you get it because there's eight years left in the primary lease term, you get it for seven cap rate or seven plus cap. Uh, they're paying below market rent and then they have a big rent jump built into the option period. You can go ahead and negotiate with that tenant ahead of time if the rent's going to jump up you know, 15% or something like that, you can negotiate and say, hey, for it to go up to, you know, 8% or 10%, it's go ahead now and convert that five-year remaining lease term 
to a 15%. So what you've done by doing that is you've taken it from the, you know, seven point something cap rate you bought it at, and then you have the new higher rents you built in. Now you've got an eight plus something cap rate, and for something with a 15 year lease, and now you can sell it at a six cent on on a, on a resale. So that's a way to boost your, you know, your equity growth that way, extending the lease term. Um, single tenant at least. We haven't really got into the uh, retail strip centers, which is a is a totally different animal. Um, on the single tenant at least side, there's uh, what I call my kind of my um, five levels of tenants is what I call it. And so basically. I use Young Brand sample. Uh, you know, they own uh, Pizza Hut and Taco Bell and all that. So basically, if you're buying a Pizza Hut and it's guaranteed by Young Brand's parent corporation, that's the highest level of guarantee you could get if it costs, you know, whatever, 10, 20,000 locations back in the store. Below that would be a subsidiary of Young Brand, or maybe all the stores halfway across the country are guaranteeing the lease. Below that would be a large franchisee that's maybe been in the system. 10, 15, 20 years and has, you know, 100 unit operator. Below that would be a small franchisee that only owns one or two Taco Bells. And then below that would be Joe's Tacos. Uh, you know, no brand, no support. Uh, it's just a small startup, you know, on their own. And so those are all the different types uh, of levels on the single in that lease side. As far as financing goes, typical on these properties is it's investment grade a tenant which is considered triple B minus or better investment grade by credit. Um, you can get in with as little as 25% down in some cases. Most of these properties are going to use financing. You're going to need to be putting, you know, 30, 35% down. Okay. And then that financing typically um, resets every five years, or can you get fixed rate for longer than that? I mean, in this rising interest rate environment, one of the concerns that I really have is, okay, I'm going to go out and buy this um, triple net lease property. Cap rate isn't great, but you know we're in a low interest rate environment. So if I can get 3% on the 10-year U.S. Treasury and I can get 6% triple net lease, okay, well, that's pretty good. But if inflation starts to increase and or interest rates start to increase, uh, that's not such a great investment, but I'll hold it. Now, five years from now, my mortgage, my financing resets. If that also is much higher, I don't really love the prospect of that risk. So tell us a little bit about the financing that you're seeing and how that works. Okay, so typically, uh, you know, there are options such as three, five, seven, and 10-year fixed-rate loans in the commercial space, different from the multifamily space. Um, my clients, I advise them to go for the seven to ten year fix. Most of the time, they do the ten year fix. The difference between a five year fix and a ten year fixed loan on the interest rate might be twenty basis points higher. So, for my clients, I feel for having a ten year fixed rate loan, especially with fixed rental increases in the lease, uh, for that twenty basis point premium. It's a lot better deal because typically keep the trough in most cycles go about every seven to ten years. So if you have a ten year fixed rate loan, you can move with the cycle. So instead of in five years, 
might not be the best time to refinance your uh, market. Uh, instead of being forced to do that, for 10 years, you have more flexibility to wait for the opportune time in the cycle to see a great offer from another buyer to send 30 more exchange in your properties or to uh, pay down the debt uh, more over time to where you could refinance even if the interest rates are higher and still be cash flowing at the same amount for what you originally bought it for or higher. So I, I stress test the property. So what we'll do is if it's you know a 15-year lease and we're putting a 10-year fixed rate loan, uh, put in the parameters, the rental increases are going to be X, the principal pay down is going to be X. So if you refinance, we're going to refinance in 10 years. Let's say the interest rate jumps from five to seven or seven and a half. Uh, what does that look like with the mortgage balance that's remaining on that property? The other reason I like the seven or 10 year fixed rate debt is a lot of these lenders put prepayment penalties on the loans. So basically use a five, four, three, two, one structure where the penalty is larger when it first starts out in the first year. By the time it ends year five, uh, the penalty is almost gone at that point. So let you pay a certain amount each year additional down for the principal of the loan. But after year five, you can pay down as much as you want. So you can stress test it over time. I don't believe in three or five year fixed rate debt um, unless you're doing a value add. Where, for instance, you're buying a, a half vacant, uh, you know, retail center or something where you're going to uh, blend the cap rate up once you stabilize it at a much higher cap rate. Even if you have to move it to a regular loan, um, you're going to have a much higher cap rate to offset rising interest rates in the marketplace. But so typically in those type of deals, you'll do an interest only uh, loan for three to five years while you're stabilizing the property. And then you'll convert it to uh, a regular loan after that time. Sometimes even you can negotiate with the existing lender on the interest-only loan you're going to use. That once you stabilize it and convert, you can already know the uh, fixed interest rate that it's going to convert to. They'll go ahead and give you uh, a range, uh, you know, in writing of what the loan will be when you convert it from the interest-only to the permanent. Okay. I think for that 20 basis point spread to go out to 10 years makes a lot of sense, especially in this rising interest rate environment. Um, and I guess as, as I listen to you speak about all this, I have a question since I've never really done this and maybe others are thinking the same thing. Is this triple net lease uh, purchase literally like a buy and hold strategy? Are you trying to buy this one property or this portfolio of properties? And just hold it forever with a great tenant and just clip the coupon every single month, collect the rent and do nothing. And, and you want to have this in your estate for 30 years, 50 years, 70 years. Or do you see people buying and selling these like they might multifamily homes? I mean, I know all, all of real estate is a longer term investment strategy. We're not day trading like you might a stock or cryptocurrency. But. In your experience, is this just purely a buy and hold, put it away and never think about it? Or do you have clients that are a little bit more active and they're turning over their portfolio and they're adding some value and they're selling and they're taking a look at cap rates? And um, where, where do you find your clients to be um, holding these, these investments for how long a period? So a lot of it depends on uh, their age. So depending on how you know, 
where you are across the spectrum with net worth and then your age. Uh, you know, typically, my older clients, what they're doing is they're doing estate planning. Uh, they might be in their 60s in age or 70s in age, and so they put more value on a 15, 25-year primary lease term fix where they're flipping the coupon, and they're basically living off the income, even though their net worth is, you know, whatever it is, four or five million. Uh, basically, living off that income coming in from that national tenant, and their goal is to basically, you know, own so they pass away and they leave it to their heirs and accept that base at the at the new value. Um and, and that's basically their goal. That's that's kind of different from a uh, a REIT or uh, a triple net fund. Um that their goal is value creation. You know, they're looking to buy a portfolio of properties at a higher cap rate and then spin them off individually at a lower cap rate. Um they're looking at you know, buying something like they said with a mom and pop, rents are under market. Um, they're looking at buying the, the blend and extends where they pay all cash for uh, a property that is, um, you know, that's got three or four years left on the lease. Uh, they're also looking for sometimes there's buildings dark where the tenant's not paying any income, up, and it could be something like. Uh, you remember when they used to have uh, the blockbuster videos stores, and yeah. they, you know, didn't go online like Netflix, and then they, you know, went bankrupt basically. Um, well, a lot of those locations, even though Blockbuster went bankrupt, those were in some great areas. Those buildings, and so people would take a Blockbuster video, and they would put, uh, you know, U.S. Bank on one thing. And then on the other side, they put a dentist office in the other side. And then they do triple net leases. And then they would turn around and sell it for six and a half cap in the market. But they bought that building for a, a lower price. It was a building, but it was in a great location. And then they, uh, you know, re-bought that building uh, and get much higher rent than a tenant for, for equity growth. So those are the type on the net, net lease side with value. Uh, that you could have on the single plan that lease side. So a lot of it depends on how active the is. So, you know, someone from Airbnb that's very active with their assets, um, retail is going to be less active, but you're still going to have to work for yield some on, on those type of value add plays versus if you're just uh, a doctor making a ton of income and you don't have time to breathe return or you're an older retiree that's doing estate planning, you're going to be more clipping a coupon on those types of single family properties. So it's kind of like taxes. Everybody's uh, individual situation is different, and that's why usually I review their uh, basic personal financial statement, and then we jump on a call to discuss their specific situation, their liquidity, their net worth, how old they are, what their goals are, um, et cetera. And that kind of from there determines what type uh, of property and what type of area we're looking at for them. Um, and that's it's a pretty good overview of the single tenant net lease space. Um, if you want to go into retail, we can switch into that and some of the differences between that and single tenant net lease. Okay. Um, yeah, no, I think that that's pretty interesting. The other question is, is there other value add strategies 
that um, you think are important to talk about? I mean, we talked about changing the tenant. Um, I think earlier before this conference, you and I had been talking about, you know, finding either air rights or parking space uh, opportunities to expand. What else do you see in terms of adding value? Because for the people that are listening to this this podcast, like you said, we're pretty active. We're doing Airbnb. It's probably the most active form of um, real estate management that there is. You know, our leases are measured in days as opposed to years. And now we're talking about the opposite end of the spectrum where we're looking to have a 30-year net lease tenant. So I think we'll roll up our sleeves and get our hands dirty and try and make a little bit more money. At least I personally will. What else do you see out there that's interesting? Uh, so um, you can buy, um, you know, raw land that's commercial and the path of growth. Um, and what you do for that is you uh, look at the current and the future of the use map, uh, what it is today and what they've approved out for the next 15 or 20 years um, on what growth uh, and kind of zoning that they're going to approve. And then you buy that land in the path of the growth. So if you see a bigger, you know, single in a net lease uh, type tenant such as a, a Costco or a Lowe's go in, then all, it creates a ripple for all the land around there just starts building and popping up because once a, a Costco or a Walmart or something else goes in, they'll typically spend, you know, fifty, hundred thousand or more on due diligence for uh, location in the area before they commit to a site. They're, they're much more picky. So generally, we pay and the retailers will follow suit because they want to be around that big anchor for traffic that the big anchor generates and they want to build off of that for their property. Uh, you could do so, uh, you know, a land banking that way. You could also buy building on the corner and then slowly assemble of other pieces that are around that and have a bigger parcel size uh, to then do a Project or quality tenant. Yeah. You know, you could have a gas station on a corner with, uh, and half an acre that's an old gas. The other piece of another old building right next to it to then give you an acre and a half piece of land. Then what you could do is you could put uh, one of the national credit, uh, like a, um, a racetrack or something like that, gas station. A real big here in Georgia where they have literally about 20 gas pumps. They have a huge uh, grocery inside where you buy a lot of food and things like that. And, uh, you know, those go for you know, very low cap rates once they're developed and, you know, usually sell for about four or five million bucks. So you can, you know, assemble these parcels together and create value that way. I used to do the commercial land assemblage before I got into larger apartment buildings and then the uh, retail side of things. I still do the larger, much bigger apartment buildings, but my main focus is on retail now. Um, land assemblage, you know, it's more complex when you're doing a little bit private with water, but if you're just, you know, one or two um, pieces of land with old buildings, uh, then there's not as much uh, moving parts and, and approvals to, you know, readapt it to something like that. Um, also, as we mentioned before, we can check the air rights. Uh, you know, you could have something that had, when it was originally built, had a lower density, uh, and now they're allowed much higher density in the area. 
and that creates uh, where a developer can come and, and buy the land off of you or you can joint venture with that developer uh, on a project where they build a much higher density project and greatly improve the value of the land that's sitting there. So th those are a couple of different strategies you can do with a single tenant at least. And then uh, we can go into the uh, retail centers if you want. Okay. Um, okay, so what else are you seeing? What else should we know? And, uh, you know, I found this very interesting. There's a lot to contemplate here. I'm certainly going to have more questions, and people will too, and I'm sure they'll contact you directly. We've got to, uh, we're going to include a link on the podcast and elsewhere. But what else are you seeing or hearing or thinking that you'd like to share with our audience? So, uh, on the single-tenant-netly side, um, it's important to uh, – people think it's mainly passive, which it is for the most part, but there's a lot of work that goes into finding the property and doing the proper due diligence by the property and closing on the property. After you've done all that, it's pretty passive for the quality national tenant. Um, just because it's a national tenant doesn't mean the investment is foolproof. Uh, you have to look at the location. You have to look at what's written into the lease. Um, some of these leases, they'll have it to where, even if it's absolute triple net lease, they'll have it where the, the parent company, uh, you know, burns off. So if it's a 10 or 15 year lease, five years has where the, the corporate guarantee goes away. Or it'll have where if their sales are not above a certain level within a certain number of years, then they can terminate the lease early. And when you go to get a loan with a lender, even if it's a 15-year primary term lease, they will look at it, you know, if the corporate guarantee goes away in five years or if they can terminate early in five years, which sometimes Starbucks will do that on their team. They'll look at it as just a five-year lease for Connick because of what the lender's looking at is they're not guaranteeing a lease for more than five years, even though they signed a 10-year primary lease term. They're only counting it for that five years. And so when you try to go get financing, it's going to make it very tough for you to get the amortization period you want and the length of the loan term that you want. So there's a lot of things that have to be um, how I'm kind of different as I say on the buyer side, I still work with owners for off market properties and I still do still deal with listing other listing brokers for properties. Uh, but how I'm different is I mainly represent the buyer. Uh, I'm there for them with the whole process, even with a commercial attorney, I'm reviewing everything. Um, most of the Big brokerages on the retail side, they mainly list properties. They'll only show you what is in their inventory for sale because they're trying to sell that on behalf of the seller. It could be a property, average property, bad property. What I do is different. Over my 15 years, I have a vast network of many thousands of retail owners in the database across the country, state by state, and I go through all my resources to find my clients the best properties to buy versus, you know, you know, one big brokerage company is only going to show you what's in their inventory, so mainly focus on selling that. I'm looking through multiple, multiple owners on and off market to find my clients the best properties to buy. Um, so th those are the key things. Uh, make sure you have someone that has an extensive network to find you the right property in the right amount of time, especially if it's a being exchanged. Um, and make sure that you have someone there reviewing the due diligence with you the whole time. Uh, looking for these problems in the leases that's going to affect the financing 
um, or the cash you think or the security you think you're going to be getting for that property. Okay, great. Um, one question that comes to mind, and I know uh, maybe we should have covered this a little bit earlier, but it's a good question nonetheless is, you know, Amazon is at all-time highs. Jeff Bezos is the world's richest man. He's disrupting everything retail, uh, grocery with the purchase of Whole Foods. Now he's entering pharmaceuticals. You know, like his vision of the world going online only seems to be coming true. So what's happening to the opportunity set for ship, uh, strip shopping malls and shopping malls and vacancies? Is this the right time to be considering this strategy? Yeah, so uh, I, I love retail. Um, I think it's a great value add play, um, and, and it's a great sector to own. Um, you know, I belong to the ICSC, which is the International Council of Shopping Centers Association. Uh, they've been in business over 60 years, and it's a preeminent uh you know, Freeman Association worldwide where anything retail is discussed, uh, where it's development or tenants or leases or anything like that, financing uh, comes from there. So on the retail front, we've known for a very long time that uh, the big box department stores, as we call them, you know, uh, such as you know, Macy's and Sears and, you know, Toys R Us and these kind of spaces, you know, people are just hearing it now, but we've known for, you know, five, six, seven years that these type of retailers weren't, weren't doing that great. Um, you know, that type of model lends itself to people walking in the store, looking at something, checking on their phone, and then going on the internet to try to find it cheaper to have it shipped to their house and to pay less for a price. Uh, that's what, you know, that model dictates. So in that arena, the sales have been going down on the large, big box, department type stores. Now, as far as online sales, online sales currently now make up about 9 to 10% of all retail sales uh, completely. Uh, they used to be at about 3% uh, about you know, seven, eight years ago. A lot of that, though, is growth on uh, the, the retailers themselves. So online-only stores only make up about 4% of that amount. The rest of it is existing and order, expanding their online presence and figure out, figuring what they want to have as far as a percentage of a brick and mortar space and, and an online space. Um, people are always still going to go shop at stores. Um, people love to order things online, but they don't like to return things online. Return things online, they have to wait two or three weeks. Sometimes they lose their package. They, sent back, oftentimes they're talking to, um, you know, out-of-the-country call centers that are reading off the book, and they don't know how to help them completely, uh, and so they're waiting a very long time to return this merchandise and get what they want or even get a refund. So what they typically do is they'll go into the brick-and-mortar store, and they'll go return that and purchase right away and get the money back right away or go shopping in the store and containing things that are waiting for three or four weeks uh, to get that return. So the model is perfect. There's a pain point for consumers that they don't like about the online model. Um, we're focusing with retail now. 
what I call internet resistant and experiential type. So these are tenants that don't do stuff online. So, you know, a retail center might have a doctor's uh, veterinary office, uh, a hair clinic, uh, a restaurant, a, a gym, a karate school. Um, these are different types of tenants where people don't go by and do something online. They have to go to the space and physically do something and give money to that brick-and-mortar tenant to be able to make the profit and to pay, you know, the landlord to rent every month. That type of sector is booming and growing, uh, the neighborhood uh, retail space. Uh, the department, the large department store boxes, you know, 1,500,000 square feet. And the malls of those are being reconverted into, you know, like Dave & Buster's entertainment centers, uh, you know, stuff like that, where it's an experience where people, people don't go to the mall anymore just to find uh, unique, uh, they go there for an experience now, to experience things, the buzzword of experience. They want to draw the consumers in, have them something where they can create magical memory, and then they remember it, and then they want to come back to it versus, I'm just going to the store to buy something. There's not that big of a draw there, unless they're, you know, an experiential random net resistant type tenant where they have to, uh, you know, to buy something. But, you know, to be at those points, or Amazon strategy online, uh, people are, you know, habits of nature. They want to go out and experience things. The majority of the population isn't going to sit in their house seven days a week and click a mouse all day long and have a hundred items drop shipped to their house and never go out to eat with people and never go out and, and do things or the movies or experience things. You know, they're not going to stay in their house seven days a week. So, the thought of drones from the sky drop shipping packages down, uh, that's not really something that's founded in reality. Yes, is online resales growing. Yes, is department stores having a shift to where they're going more online now and shipping more out of warehouse per square foot and retail space. But on the flip side of that, the small balance retail, 10,000 square feet and below, that segment is growing heavily with an internet resistant and experiential segment in the retail space. Okay, makes sense. And I don't think, you know, the sky is dropping and the world is changing really quickly, but I do think, you know, this has gone faster and further than anyone would have thought if we'd had this conversation a few years ago, right? I mean, the amount of things that they're doing and how quickly they're getting into it, and it's definitely worth keeping an eye and ear on, and it's great that you've got that uh, council that you sit on and you've got that familiarity because, you know, I, I caution everybody, the world is definitely changing, and what we knew in the past is likely going to change going forward, but that doesn't mean that you shouldn't get ahead of it and find, like, the great opportunity set. I think the experiential, um, you know, investment thesis is sound. Restaurants, coffee shops, you're not getting that online. Um, karate studios, gyms, etc. So I think, um, Joel, you've got some really good points here, and I think this has been really helpful and a really good introduction to triple net leases, where we are in the cap cycle, what the opportunity is, how to add some value and some plays. And I would encourage everybody to um, do their homework, reach out to Joel, um, click on the link that we'll include, and um, he can answer your questions. So Joel, is there anything else you want to say to the audience before we wrap this up? Sure. Uh, 
you know, we, we, we didn't get too much into the Rotella Thrift Centers. Um, there's some value I played there as well. Didn't get too much into the what? The uh, retail thrift centers versus the single center okay. lease property. Um, you know, it takes some time to go through that. I don't know if we have the time today to go through all that, how that's different from single center at least. Uh, but there's more value plays there as well um, in, in larger price points. So, you know, just the way, just some quick points. The retail services, you know, they're valued a little bit differently. So, you know, worried about single tenant lease, and if one tenant goes dark, they're paying the mortgage every month. You can have something such as the Starbucks, all-in-one strip center, uh, where, you know, with a 30% payment, one of those tenants goes out, you're able to service that mortgage every month while you're waiting to fill that third space that's in that center. That's one main key point of difference between single tenant lease property and a retail strip center. Um, also, there's different value at plays where you can buy a big strip center and parking lot is unused at the top, and then you can break it out into uh, single tenant net lease pieces, or if there's existing single tenant net lease properties that are part of the overall project, you could break those out after the sale and then sell those at uh, a lower cap rate than what you bought the whole project for. So on the retail strip center side, there's a bunch of different uh, value-add components to that as well, but it would take uh, some more time. You know, like we're talking about single tenant lease, it would take some time to fully deliver Okay, can you give us an idea of um, price points to purchase an entire retail strip center? Uh, so, uh, retail strip center on the low end, you could be looking at $2 million. Uh, up to the high end, you could be looking at you know, some of them go up to 40 million, depending on what it is and, and what the location of it is. Both individual investors focus on strip centers that are about, you know, 12, 13 million and below. Uh, when you start going 2 million and above, depending on the, the mix of the tenant base and where it's located at, uh, you'll be competing more with uh, REIT, insurance companies, pension funds, that have uh, preferred vendor status with their um, commercial mortgage lenders. They built up a decade of time. And they can get special interest rates and financing in the market that the individual investor can't get on a deal. Um, and so they will be getting a lower interest rate, so then they can pay a lower cap rate for those higher quality assets. So you know, typically 15 million above, you can get pushed out in property. Um, typically kind of the sweet spot is the Kind of the four to twelve million dollar range. It's it's too big for the small guys, and it's too little for the REITs to focus on. And so, oftentimes, you can get a better cap rate, uh, higher cap rate, and you can get a better financing on the loan because it's a, it's a bigger loan for an individual from the lender. So they'll give you a little bit better interest rate. You might have a fifty to hundred basis point swing on yield buying in that kind of that you know four to eleven or twelve million dollar range. Um, you're kind of in the, that gray area between the small buyers and the big buyers. Got it. Well, it seems to me that, that that's probably the area where there's been the most disruption, meaning I think that the really big malls that provide um, experiences and everything in one location, they've also been hurt a little bit due to Amazon. But it's these smaller strip centers that I believe 
where there's been a lot of uh, pain in, a, in the smaller retailers. And so therefore, a lot of them are dark. And so that might be a really interesting opportunity, risky, but it seems to me like that might be an area where there's some distress. You know, some places are dark. People are looking to sell. They want to exit. They're fearful of Amazon. And I'm always a, a, a opportunistic buyer. But I also think that that's, you know, sometimes you don't want to catch that falling knife. It could continue to fall more. But are you seeing a lot of pain and suffering and discomfort in that area? And so it's an opportunity? Or are you just saying all systems are go and it's just a good, you know, uh, way to add more yield on your investment? So it, 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 it's a strong market. I mean, retail in the, in the warm belt state is doing very well. The cold belt states, there's more isolated pockets. You get a little bit higher cash flow, but over time, the overall rent growth and development in those areas is more limited. So places like Ohio, uh, Wisconsin, uh, Illinois, um, you know, you can get a little bit higher cap rate cash flow, uh, but long term, those properties aren't going to have the rent growth that the warm belt states are having. You know, like Georgia and Texas, um, in Arizona, uh, there is some um, value add plays. Uh, when I look at buying something, I look at it from the standpoint of I want the dirt to be fundamentally sound and the location to be good, and I want the for the reason to sell at a better price to be another reason. So I want it to be that uh, you know maybe. Someone got a divorce and the wife inherited some property from the husband as part of the divorce proceedings and she was never involved in the real estate, so she just wants to cash out and so she sold at a little bit above market rate, um, just to move the properties. Sometimes people inherit stuff in an estate and they're, you know, states away and they don't want to own it anymore. Um, you could have a partnership split where they don't want to be around each other anymore and they'll take a little bit less of a, you know, more of a discount to sell. You could have developers. Uh, we had a developer last year. One of my clients was buying another $6 million property this year. He bought one last year where it was a brand new retail center and we got a little bit over a seven cap rate on it for about six million bucks. And the developer wasn't even planning on selling it, but because they got, um, found more land projects that they did, they weren't planning on to develop more projects. They were willing to let this one go and they were holding it long term and they had never had any intention to sell it. And my client got a, you know, overly built retail center with extra wide parking and the developer was real thoughtful in the tenants he put in and how picky he was on the lease creation. And he got a great asset at above market cap rate just because the developer was motivated to sell. So there's different reasons like that why you can get a good deal on a property. Uh, that have nothing to do with the property itself being bad or the location of the tenants being bad. It's more on the uh, seller motivation side for other reasons than I focus on. Well, I like that a lot. Um, and I think that's a reason to work with a buy side broker like yourself. Um, for those of you that don't know, I'm in the process of making a pretty significant uh, change in, in my portfolio. Probably the single largest asset, well, not probably, definitely the single largest asset that my ex-wife and I own, we're going to be selling, we're going to be 1031ing, and we're looking for uh, purchasing new property, and we're going to get in contact with Joel um, and see what he has to show us and thoughts and so on. I'm a relatively young guy. I'm 48 years old, 
And while I want to clip the coupon and, and live off the income that this investment will generate, uh, I'm also young enough that I really want to see some capital appreciation. I want to see some value add. I don't mind doing the work. I don't need to sit back and you know just collect the check and do nothing else. Um, so I want to work with somebody who's understanding of all that and willing to roll up their sleeves as well and partner with me. And from what I hear from Joel and the reason that we featured him on this podcast is he's uh, somebody that I'm going to definitely contact and communicate with and hopefully do some pretty interesting investment opportunities. So, Joel, keep your eyes and ears out. We've got something coming probably in the next six months or so. Okay. Uh, would you like to, me to give the um, viewers my website information or my phone number or... Yeah, what we're going to do is we're going to, yeah, what we're going to do is because many people are driving or at the gym or whatever, we'll include a link to all of that. And so they can just go ahead and click on the link and let Joel know that you heard about, uh, Joel from Short Term Rental University. We'd appreciate that. And, um, Joel, I'm going to contact you after this to discuss our, my opportunity. And, um, right now, let's just go ahead and wrap this thing up and say, Thank you very much. We really appreciate your time and your insight, your ear to the ground, and keeping uh, everybody abreast and informed of the opportunity set. We'll see how many people start to sell single-family, short-term rental, Airbnb-type properties and move into either multifamily, which I think is a natural way. But I think the opportunity to go even beyond that into triple net leases for those that have enough properties, such as myself, is really compelling and I wanted to bring everybody this insight because even if you're not prepared to do this today or tomorrow, a year from now, five years from now, 10 years from now, certainly 30 years from now, you should know and you should be doing your homework and you should be learning and you should be following the, mar the markets so that when you get to that point, you've got the education and you're prepared to execute. So, great. Joel, thank you so very much. We really appreciate your time. Have a great day and a great weekend. All right. Thanks, Richard. You too.